Hello and welcome to Conversations with Ipswich School, the podcast where we invite current and former students, our Ipswichians, to debate an area of common interest and talk about what life at Ipswich School is all about. We find out how interests develop into careers and ask how school helps to shape their futures. Today we have two guests who are passionate about zoology and the part it can play in building a more sustainable future for us all. So hello and welcome to Conversations with Ipswich School. Today we're joined by Dr David Willer, who's a former student who left to study at Cambridge University. David's now a research fellow at Cambridge and running a research team focused on underexploited seafood sectors, which benefit human health and environmental sustainability. So welcome, David. Good to see you. Good to see you. And David will be interviewed by Sam, uh, who joined Ipswich School for sixth form and is interested in both zoology and veterinary medicine for his next step. So welcome, Sam. How are you finding Ipswich School? Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your research, David. And yes, I've really enjoyed my time at the school so far, thank you. The opportunities for academic challenge have been brilliant. and I've really enjoyed other aspects of school life, such as sport as well. Thank you very much. Right, so I'm going to hand straight over to Sam, uh, who'll be talking to David about life beyond school and helping to understand a bit more about zoology and scientific research. Have fun. Thank you very much. So, David, please can you explain for our listeners what you do and what the research study is looking at? Okay, so I think just to set a broad context, what I do is I lead research on fish and seafood innovation. So that's looking at how we can look at underexploited and high potential uh, areas within fish and seafood sectors, uh, and then look at how we can improve health and sustainability outcomes from those areas. That sounds really interesting and incredibly relevant to the current drive for more sustainable food production. And from your research, what discoveries or breakthroughs are you hoping to make? I think the thing about research is that about, you know, particularly in my field, about 90% of it doesn't work. So you can't gamble on any one thing being successful necessarily. But But I can say that you can kind of split up what we do into kind of three broad categories. So we look at novel breakthrough innovation in aquaculture. So how can we make aquaculture or or fish and shellfish farming more efficient? How can we achieve higher sustainability uh, outputs uh, and nutrition outputs? In addition, we look at mechanisms to drive demand for sustainable fish and seafood at the expense of less sustainable meat and fish products. So that's very much behavioural research, market research, that kind of thing. Uh, And then we also work on large big data projects looking at how we can collaborate with industries, with NGOs, with government to actually drive change in society. Because just doing research on its own, it doesn't actually achieve anything unless you have a mechanism to translate those impacts to the real world. Fantastic. So your research is obviously, as you've said, very challenging as lots of different aspects must come into play. But which areas have proved the most rewarding? I think the most rewarding thing is when you can kind of see real world change from the research you're doing. So I guess one example of this would be that a couple of years ago, um, we ran a large project uh, actually for the owners of Bird's Eye Foods, looking at the opportunities for mass market food products made of mussels. Uh, And mussels, which are a type of shellfish, are actually the most sustainable meat product on the planet. They're a net carbon sink, no greenhouse gas emissions, they don't pollute the ocean, and they actually offer coastal protection as you farm them but they're not very popular. So we were looking at how you could potentially use mussels as a food source for the mass market, 
and what the key mechanisms to do that would be. But actually, there is, as a result of that, uh, the owners have now decided to launch a mass market muscle-based product this year. So you, when you can kind of see that change across the industry, that's really, really effective. That sounds like it would be an incredibly rewarding change to see and obviously to recognise your own contribution to that. So that is a really interesting insight into the breakthroughs that can be made in zoological research and particularly how as a sphere of academic study, working with the animal kingdom can yield incredibly useful conclusions for humankind. And so conversely, working in academia is obviously incredibly challenging, but I wonder whether the areas of your work you have most struggled with or found most difficult are solely to do with academic studies, so collecting data and interpreting that, or whether it's other aspects such as raising awareness of the significance and getting market leaders on board with the conclusions you have made. I think it's probably neither actually. So, so for the work that I do, it's very applied zoology or ecology. So we've got the kind of the fundamental principles are understood. And what we're doing is trying to translate research into actual industry action or political action. And the difficult thing with that is actually funding is quite hard because often research is deemed slightly too late stage for regular research funding, but way too early for industry funding. So actually funding is always a challenge. And I think the other thing is that prioritization can be a challenge, working out what the most important things to focus on are to drive change given limitations and resources. So how would you go about that? How do you secure funding and how do you prioritize your research? So, so funding is an interesting one. You've got to lay a very wide net. You can go to uh, standard research councils. So most of the research councils are run by UKRI. That's the BBSRC, NERC, EPSRC, etc. That will give you funding for kind of fairly early stage groundbreaking research. You can go to industry, so large food companies or large fishing companies, for example, uh, and see what they might fund uh, if it's more applied. Uh, and there are also lots of much smaller operations who might fund PhD students, for example, or master studentships, which can actually help you get a lot of the work done in the lab. So there's a kind of variety of sources. Fantastic. So for me personally, the idea of working with animals in the setting of zoology or veterinary medicine has been a very long held ambition. But I wonder how you became interested in zoology as a whole and also why you decided to specialise in fish and seafood and particularly bivalve shellfish. Not, not in a logical way is one answer. So I applied to natural sciences at university as a student uh, and always wanted to go into sports science. So very much a kind of fitness and health related so topic. But actually, when I was doing my undergrad, I did quite a lot of plant science research too, which I hadn't done much of before. Uh, and that involved lots of field trips to nice locations, which, you know, Portugal, etc. And also some really good summer placements. So I spent one summer working with a, a massive laser to shine up out of planes on different types of vegetation. So that kind of exposure got me interested a bit more, a bit more broadly in food security, uh, and other areas of research, which then led to me doing a, a PhD in food security, designing algal feeds for aquaculture. Then from designing algal feeds in aquaculture, I kind of spun back into fish, seafood, health, sustainability in that sphere. So it's all kind of looped back on itself, but in a rather long-winded way, actually. But I think the key thing is you gain a lot of skills and experience by going across those different sectors to learn different things. Fantastic, I'm sure there's lots of transferable skills as well. So in terms of your work now, do you spend much time in the field or are you primarily lab-based? Uh, it's, it's quite a broad mix. So there's a bit of time in the field, 
uh, a bit of time actually on fishery sites or with industry, quite a bit of time in the lab, lots of time supervising PhD students or master students, because actually in reality with research, it's not the lecturers who do the research, it's the PhD students, it's the master students, it's the undergrads who are actually doing all the grunt work. So they, they deserve the credit really. And a lot of our time is actually spent looking after them as well. So do you have a particular preference for an area of work or a particular activity maybe that you really enjoy completing? I'd say I like the diversity. That's the key thing. I don't like waking up and having to do the same thing every single day. I think the great thing about research is that you're your own boss. You're, you're deciding what you do each day. So as long as you're disciplined, you're working out what's the most important thing to do. You can have a, lot, a large variety of things to do and it's really exciting. Brilliant. So as the world attempts to adopt more sustainable behaviours, I find that methods of food production and the way we view and interact with the natural world are likely to significantly change. So how do you think the use of fish and seafood will change in the future and what areas may become more important? I think the first thing to emphasise is the fact that the sector is still in a mess. As, as, a, as a few examples, since the 1970s, we haven't actually caught any more fish from the sea. But we've sent out far, far more fishing boats to actually catch the same catch. And that's just due to depleting stocks. Yet our fish and seafood production has actually nearly doubled. That's all been from fish farming, which is actually the world's fastest growing food sector. And that's great, but actually it hasn't been growing very sustainably. Uh, it's been reliant upon growth in sectors such as the salmon sector, uh, the shrimp sector, the prawn sector, which are reliant upon other food products to actually use as feed for those organisms. So there is a need to change to more sustainable farming practices. Moving forwards, there is a lot of weight placed upon the mariculture and the agriculture sector to feed people, in particular with land resources becoming more limited, a growing population, and capture of wild fish in the sea becoming more limited too. So there needs to be a way of sustainably producing fish and seafood on a farm level. Uh, and that's where actually looking at species that don't require feed inputs, such as bivalve shellfish or, or such as seaweed, uh, is actually really important because farming those can actually improve the environment uh, and can have very pos positive impacts to human health as well. So clearly it's really important that sustainable fish farming becomes a much talked about topic. And do you find that there is now greater public and commercial buy-in to research and sustainable fish farming? Is there greater public awareness maybe? There is slightly greater public awareness, but I think the key thing to emphasize is that there is a lot of confusion across the food industry, across media around food, which doesn't help. So what one is that one is the vegan vegetarian argument. It is true that in many cases, a vegan or a, veg or a vegetarian diet is more sustainable, but that's not always the case. And there's a lot more nuance than that. As one example, uh, a mussel or a clam is far more sustainable than wheat, soy or rice. So, and, and also far more nutritious. So that's one issue which needs to be emphasized. I think the other thing is that if you have sustainability is your only goal, you actually ignore some really big issues so, so one is the ultra-processed food problem. You know, in, in the West, around 70% of our calories come from just four crops. So wheat, soya, uh, corn, and rice. Either, either those crops themselves or the vegetable oils that come from them. That's a big issue. Uh, and it does not help with issues like obesity uh, or micronutrient deficiency in both developed and less developed societies. So there is a need to try and emphasize nutritional quality and nutritional 
importance as you grow the food sector as well as the sustainability and matching those two up is really important. So how do you think that could be achieved? How could there be greater public awareness of the importance of your research and particularly the necessity to adopt more sustainable fish farming methods? We have to remember that any individual is only quite a small player in the system. But in terms of raising awareness, I think a lot of it is about looking at what the easiest levers are and remembering that the vast majority of consumers actually have much less care about the environment and their health than you might expect. If a person walks into a supermarket, generally the first concern of theirs is what does it taste like and how expensive is it? If you can look at those levers first and actually change what food products people buy on those preferences, that can have the biggest impact. So, so as one example, if you have a consumer who usually buys codfish fingers or, or salmon fish cakes at the supermarket. If you can change the whole supply chain through your research, through industry action, so that they are now buying mussel fish cakes and clam fish fingers because they are cheaper and tastier, you've actually driven a huge, huge sustainability and nutritional benefit without consciously telling the consumer that's what you should do. Uh, and actually that's often the first step in driving change rather than launching educational campaigns which can be tricky and, and have hurdles. Fantastic so how does the cost of sustainable fish farming particularly of shellfish compare with commercial fishing or with much more intensive methods? Well so cost is a funny one so in wild fishing the fishing industry is actually subsidized several trillion dollars a year to make it economic Otherwise, it wouldn't be economic to send fishing boats out. So, so one way of changing costs is to get rid of those subsidies because that's what makes things like cod or tuna relatively cheap compared to other seafood as well. So that's one thing. At the moment, if you go into a supermarket, actually, mussels as an example are still one of the cheapest seafood products. Uh, cheaper than salmon, cheaper than, cheaper than cod, uh, cheaper than tuna, actually. But the issue is the format they're available in is not appealing. So it's not just about the cost, it's also about changing the format uh, uh, and the type of product you're selling to actually make them appealing to consumers. Fantastic. So are there any other mechanisms you'd like to highlight for driving consumer choice towards sustainable fish farmed food? I think I'm, I've already kind of touched on this, but if you're try, trying to drive change in what people eat, it's about making it as easy as possible. One example, if you're a mum who usually makes you know, usually cooks up fish fingers for her child's dinner or breaded haddock. She basically goes to the goes to the freezer aisle, freezer aisle at Iceland or Asda, picks out the frozen food, takes it home, cooks it. If you're now telling her that she needs to go back and she needs to cook up some kind of Mediterranean sardine dish or cook up oysters with a white wine sauce for her kids, that is just too much of a hurdle and it's never going to happen or perhaps one in a thousand times it's going to happen. To actually drive a change, you've got to make it easy. And the only way it's going to be easy is if there's kind of one step change involved. So if instead she's picking up battered sardines or mussels in a fish cake, that's a much easier switch to make. So I think convenience and ease is the key thing. I think the second thing is that actually just visibility and placement order is important. So if you imagine a typical canteen setup, say at the school, if you put I'm not going to talk about just fish and seafood here, say talk about meat. If you put the meat option first on the menu and the meat option at the start of the counter, more people will choose that. Whereas if you simply just reverse the order of the menu and say veggie option goes on top, 
and you have the value option presented first at the counter, that can go a very, very long way to actually changing what people eat because that's the default now rather than the exception. So that's one key thing to put across too. Brilliant. So could you share for our listeners a bit more about how sustainable fish farming is environmentally beneficial and a little into the detail of the effect that can have on the landscape? Okay, I think the best way of looking at this is to kind of look at several scenarios. So first, let's look at wild fishing. So wild fishing involves dredging, line fishing, or, or harvesting in some way, shape or form fish from the sea. Uh, and there you're having a direct negative impact on fish stocks because you're taking something out of the system. So that's something which is perhaps best avoided except for some of the smaller species such as sardines, mackerel, uh, anchovies and herring for which they're low down the food chain and there's quite fast regeneration. So wild fishing, scenario one, not quite so good. Scenario two is your fed aquaculture systems. So that's things like salmon or shrimp, which are reliant upon an external supply of feed often from wild-caught fish to produce them. That in itself is problematic because you lose efficiency during the food chain, but it can be made more sustainable if you use uh, more sustainable feeds, such as feeds based on algae or plants, uh, and you can continue to kind of refine that supply chain. To make things even more sustainable, you want to look at species which don't require external sources of feed. So the kind of key things you're looking at there are some of your filter feeding fish species. So things like carp uh, or species which are herbivorous, such as tilapia or, or bassa. Uh, and then also some of your bivalve shellfish, so your mussels, your clams, your oysters, which are filter feeders. And they'll have a much lower like environmental impact in terms of the inputs you require to farm them. So that's a very much input output focused view. And you can see that your your kind of mussels, your clams, your, your oysters, or your low trophic fish such as bass or tilapia fare much better there. But that's not the only thing to look at with sustainability. You also want to look at what impact the farm itself has on the environment. As an example, a salmon farm, you're gonna have issues with pollution, nutrient runoff, other things, you're gonna need, need to try and mitigate that. With a bivalve farm, Yes, you can still have issues. If you overstock the farm, you can cause detrimental damage to the ocean. Equally, there are some benefits you could gain. A bivalve farm, for example, of mussels or oysters, acts as a reef, which offers coastal protection uh, and also a nursery habitat for fish. So you can gain quite a few benefits that way too. So I think that's, that's what you've got to look at. You've got to look at the, the inputs and outputs of your system. What are the kind of key life cycle impacts of it in terms of feed input? Uh, and then also, how does this, the farm itself directly impact the environment uh, and what are the potential benefits of it and what are the potential risks? Thank you for sharing that. So clearly, sustainable fish farming on several levels is a really beneficial process that should be adopted. So finally, a question about your time at Ipswich School. What did you get involved with and how did your time here develop your interest in zoology? So uh, at school, what did I do? I did a lot of cross country, so a lot of running. Uh, and I think that uh, gave me quite a strong background interest in health and fitness, which actually does drive a lot of the work that I do, you know, people's health uh, and the value of nutrition. So that's one thing. Uh, what else? I did a lot of stuff outside of school, actually. So I did a lot of volunteering for wildlife trusts. Um, I did DAV as well, which was inspired by school, but I did it independently. So I think there was a kind of uh, an ethos emphasized by the school around health around the environment which encouraged me to do things outside of school 
I did Green Team 2 actually, which I think still exists. And I think those kind of baseline interests in health uh, and the environment from those activities at school just kind of stemmed on to what I then engaged with at university. So at university, I did a lot of competitive marathon, running, triathlon, uh, sort of varsity matches and stuff. Uh, and then also did a lot of volunteering in labs, uh, again, around sustainability. So it's kind of those initial interests just kind of built up upon themselves, really. Thank you for sharing that. Fantastic. That's great. I'm going to jump in there. Um, so that's the third time in a row I've heard about volunteering um, being something of interest and having a longer term impact on someone's life after school. It's fascinating. I get to ask the last two questions and I'm going to ask you both the same question. And I'll start with you, David. So my question is, what advice would you give to your younger self looking back now? So I think the first thing is whenever you're trying to decide what you might want to do for your career or after school, uh, find your why before your what, if that makes sense. So I knew that I wanted to do something that helped improve people's health and the health of the planet. I didn't know what. And I think if you narrow down too early on your what, that can be an issue and actually become a problem going forwards. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is don't chase perfectionism. It wastes time. Don't go for 100% every exam. That's not a good idea. Go for good enough and allow the time and the opportunity to actually explore those other avenues, to do that volunteering, to do that sport, those other things. Uh, and that long term will be far more valuable than actually scoring 100% every exam. So I think there'd be my two bits of bits of wisdom going back. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. What about you, Sam? For me, sort of echoing on David's second point there, I think it's really vital to understand the importance of taking the opportunities which come your way, uh, whether that is at school or outside, and whether that is academically by extending your learning through wider reading or maybe competitions or getting involved with extracurricular opportunities such as sport or student voice, and that might be the sixth form committee or MedSoc, as it, I believe it's these which really come together to make you a well-rounded individual and also to really inform your thinking about your opinions, your interests, and also what you'd like to do as a next step. That's great. Thank you, Sam. And Sam, are you thinking zoology or vet med? What are you thinking? You're year 12 at the moment, is that right? So you've got some time. Where are you thinking you'll be headed to? So I'd like to specialise in wildlife medicine. And the route towards that is uh, at university, qualifying as a vet, and then also doing either a master's or intercalculated year in zoology to develop that interest uh, as a second degree and then obviously later on in the career moving into wildlife and uh, so that that might be in the setting of conservation or in the setting of commercial farming if um, as David has spoken about today sustainable fish farming for example will require wildlife specialism in veterinary medicine. That's really interesting and really interesting to hear the breadth the interconnected interest but also how broad this whole topic is that's been really really interesting for me thank you thank you David. No problem. And thank you Sam. Thank you very much thank you David. That's all for this episode, and I hope that you enjoyed listening to David and Sam discuss the many different ways that seafood research explores the intersection of nutrition and the environment. Thank you for listening. To listen to any of the other episodes, take a look at our website, ipswitch.school. The next episode is out soon, and in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.